it went straight down the middle. Then it started to... Welcome to another edition of For the Good of the Game and Bruce Dublin. On a day when we release the life story of one seven-time major winner, we're talking to another, and this woman could certainly be in the conversation for being one of the greatest players, male or female, to have ever played the game. Well, there's no question about that. And you're always the one that does all the statistics, but her career fascinated me. She had 56 victories. In the 20-year span from 96 to 2015, she played in 441 golf tournaments, made the cut in 415 of them, which is a 94% make-the-cut streak. During that time, she had 40 wins with seven majors, but I say nine majors because she won two ladies' British Opens before they were majors. And uh, from a money standpoint, she just made about $18,730,343, an average $936,517 a year. And what a thrill to have with us today. As Mike said, one of the greatest players that ever played this game, Curry Webb. Welcome. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me on. Glad to have you. You can tell how excited Bruce is for this particular chat with you because, uh, boy, he's done a lot of homework here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that, Bruce. Um, uh, you know, uh, us fellow Aussies have got to stick together. That's right. We do. Yeah, we could have started this uh, Aussie, Aussie, Aussie and let you guys kind of reply. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so, Kari, uh, you've shared with us that uh, you've listened to a few of our episodes and so you kind of know the drill. We start at the very beginning in telling your story. And uh, I guess that starts uh, in Ayr, not to be confused with Ayrshire in Scotland, but in Ayr, Queensland, Australia. So tell us a little bit about uh, early life there for you. Yeah, well, um, since they brought up Ayrshire, um, Ayr in North Queensland, Australia, was named after um, Ayr in Scotland. So, ah, there you um, go. There is there is a connection there. Um, but right. uh, growing up in Ayr, um, you know, I um, it was it's a small farming town, uh, sugarcane town, and uh, second major crop there is mangoes. So, um, my my family weren't farmers, but um, you know, the lifeblood of the town was the success or the the sugar um, price on the world market every year. So if it was a good year for, for sugar prices and the town um, flourished, if it wasn't, then the, then the town struggled. Yeah. So what did your folks do? Uh, my dad uh, had his own building company, um, and my mom, um, for most of my schooling years, worked for my grandparents who uh, owned uh, a toy shop and a gift store in the main street. Sporting family? Sporting family, yeah. Um, well, um, I think mum and dad played a lot of sport growing up, um, but they, uh, my parents and my grandparents, my mum's parents, um, uh, all took up the game of golf right around uh, the time I was born. So golf was a, a very big part of, of our family when I was little. I heard that you decided that you wanted to turn pro fairly early too. <laughs> I did. Um, Where did that come from? Well, we um, there's a tour. It's 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 still still is a tour. Um, 
in Queensland, but it's not not as vibrant as it was back in the 80s. It's called the Tropo Tour, and it was a series of pro-am tournaments up and down the up and down Queensland. Um, and you know, some of Australian Australia's greats have, have played on it. Um, you know, Ian Baker, Finch, Wayne Grady, Peter Senior, um, well Stuart Appleby. Uh, they all all came through there at some stage or another. But um, me me starting the game and taking it seriously um, when I was around eight years old, um, we had a we had a stop on the Tropo Tour at the Air Golf Club. So. Oh. Early on, I was fascinated by the idea of professional golfers and that they play golf for a living. Yeah, great story. So what's your first re- uh, memories of golf, even before maybe you even picked up a club? Um, well, my my first memories of playing golf are, um, or not even playing golf, are um, where when I was really little, um, you know, coming from a country club in Australia, um, there weren't really any uh, restrictions on kids coming out to the course um, later on a Saturday afternoon. So if my parents had played on a Saturday afternoon, I might have, uh, we might have, um, my sisters and I, um, my grandparents might have looked after us in the afternoon. They'd drop us out at the golf club about five o'clock, and uh, mum and dad were would be upstairs with their friends. and And the club was a fairly young club at, at that stage, and um, there was lots of kids my age, um, uh, you know around um and so uh the parents would be upstairs having a drink at the bar and and we'd be running riot uh downstairs uh running through bunkers and all over the place but um it was just a really great atmosphere out there and um you know i I knew my parents and my grandparents both uh loved being out there and being a part of the club so i think it was just something that i naturally gravitated towards yeah yeah Bruce, I don't know what your experience was as a kid. You know, I, I look back at mine, and I probably had the same environment in that it was a small little town, nine-hole course, but it was fairly welcoming to kids. Uh, uh, that's not true everywhere, though, is it? And I, it was probably true in Australia. I know in the, in, in the States, uh, you know, there were a fair number of clubs that just weren't that inviting for for kids to come out and play certain times and give them the run of the place. Uh, but you must have uh, you must have enjoyed having that opportunity. Yeah, well, to be honest with you, uh, I had to, there were two golf courses in my little town that I grew up in. Um, one was a nine-hole public golf course, which was sort of cute, and then the private club where my mum and dad were members. Uh, we we didn't seem to have the uh, freedom that Carrie had uh, <laughs> at her club because they wouldn't let me in the clubhouse when I was a kid. Uh, okay. So I. I'd have to sort of sneak out by the back by the eleventh green and um, try to try to get around and play the eighth, ninth, tenth, and eleventh hole that way. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, and I mean, just to have the fact that the golf course was there was great. And we thank yeah. you know we thank everybody for the help they gave us. Yeah, well, you you were able to sort of tag along, I guess, with your grandparents at a fairly early age. Yeah. Yes. Um... Yeah, my grandparents. So they they own two businesses and they work. So they work seven days a week and oh, sorry, six days a week. And um, Sundays was really um, the only day that uh, they both could play golf. Like my granddad would would play in the Sunday comp- uh, Saturday competition, um, but that was uh, usually my grandma's afternoon off, and and that probably involved babysitting us because uh, my parents were out playing golf. But yeah. Um, 
Sundays was was their day to play golf together, and they they'd always play nine holes on a Sunday morning. And um, round, around about the age of four, they they must have started asking me if I wanted to go with them, and I said yes. Um, I think that Christmas I had gotten a set of plastic clubs um, for from from Santa, so. Um, <laughs> They'd take me, uh, take me around the golf course with them, and you know, at four, walking nine holes was was a lot. So yeah, it was. My my granddad'd be pulling his own bag, and and me, um, you know, sitting on the seat on the back, on his little pool pool buggy, um, pulling me around. But uh, you know, I did that from the age of four to to eight years old with them. Um, and you know, as I got bigger and stronger, the plastic clubs just weren't cutting it anymore. And um, you know, I was I was the head was flying off and going further than the ball and I was getting frustrated. So um, <laughs> my grandparents uh, promised me for my eighth birthday, because that's when um, juniors were allowed to start um, playing Saturday morning juniors. Um, they promised me for my eighth birthday that they get me a set of clubs. And, you know, that's, that's what happened on my eighth yeah. birthday, a set of clubs and my parents gave me the bag and the, and the buggy. So tell us a little bit about those clubs. Yeah, well, um, you know, kids today, I mean, it, it's great the the clubs that are made for them today. You know, they're nice and lightweight and built built for for their size, but uh back then it was just a any hodgepodge of clubs that were um that were cut down um and and regripped. Uh, but uh so so obviously very stiff and heavy and uh and the grip being really big, but uh it was a it was um a few years after I turned pro and, you know, was doing well um, on tour overseas that, uh, you know, uh, you know, once I outgrew the, those clubs, they got handed around to the next junior that was starting and the next junior that was starting. And, um, you know, I had talked to my parents about seeing if I could find them and they must have mentioned it out of the golf club. And then one day um, uh, a member of the club uh, showed up and said, I think I have Kari's first set and he, and he had, didn't have all of them, but he had uh, uh, two or three of the irons um, and the driver, or not the driver, it was like a forward yeah. Um, yeah. of the set. And um, <laughs> unbeknownst to me, I didn't really remember what make they were, but the irons were Peter Thompson uh, golf oh. clubs. So oh, I thought that was pretty cool once I found yeah. that out. Yes. So you're telling our listeners that they probably weren't frequency matched and, um, and matched their swing <laughs> weights? <laughs> not quite. No, no, definitely not. Um, which is probably, uh, you know, I probably had to learn to, to swing with fairly stiff clubs at a very young age. Yeah. I mean, we just remember pulling out the hacksaw, Bruce, right? And yeah. yeah. Whacking it down, put another grip on it, off you go. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, so so you graduated to, to sort of some sawed down clubs at, uh, uh, at age eight, you said. Uh, yeah. Uh, when did you get sort of a real set that sort of fit you and your swing and your body at that time you remember mm, i'm not i'm not sure exactly i th- i think my first brand new set of golf clubs was when i was 13 um so i'm i'm thinking that along the way it was just maybe i maybe i went to like a you know um a set of secondhand ladies clubs at some point um mm-hmm. that makes sense and then yeah, and then when I was thirteen, um, Brosnan, which is a an Australian equipment company, um, mm-hmm. gave me a set of brand new clubs and bag and everything for free. So I was very excited about that. 
Yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, you're probably too young to have played the small ball, I would guess, huh? No, I actually, I did start with oh. that. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know if, I, I'm sure the rule had had started when I, I started in 1983. Um, and I, I'm thinking there was a grandfathering in period of time that um, the small ball, and, you know, with the RNA too, I think they were a couple of years behind. Um, there is bringing, a while we bringing yeah, in yeah. Bringing in um, the what we know as the current size golf ball. Um, but I do remember having, finally, um, when it was bought in, that you couldn't use a small ball anymore and I had to use the um, the bigger ball. I didn't like it because it didn't hit it as no. far. So um, I do <laughs> remember spun that. spun more too, more spin on Well, it. I don't know how much spin I was putting on the ball at that age, but, <laughs> but it just it wasn't flying as far and I was not happy about that. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about the golf course you grew up on. Was it nine holes, 18 holes, a lot of sand, uh, much in the way of practice facilities? Uh, it was 18 holes um, and, uh, you know, all all built and constructed by volunteers, um, vo- member volunteers at the club. Um, they had nine holes um, for many years, but um, in my lifetime, it's always been 18. Um, it was, you know, up. I think a really great golf course to grow up on Uh, one because I had access to it all the time. Um, And then practice facilities weren't great. Um, The driving range was just the area that you hit uh, out onto the first fairway. Um, And then a small, a small putting and chipping green. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't, it wasn't great, but it was enough for me um, at that age. Uh, And as I got older, the club allowed me to, to do a bit more work on my short game, you know, on the actual uh, greens around the golf course. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that was, that was helpful, but um, you know, I, I definitely have left a lot of blood, sweat and tears on that, on that practice area (laughs) at the air golf club. That's for sure. Yeah. I I bet you have, if you're like most of our guests, uh, they played multiple sports as kids. Is that true for you as well? Yeah, I played um, just about any sport I could, could get into not a lot um away from from school sport um you know organized sport away from school really was golf and and maybe a little bit of indoor cricket but um at at school I played everything hockey um softball um netball which um so for American listeners hockey is field hockey and netball is I was um, say, a version yeah. of basketball, but you don't bounce the ball. So um, I, I played anything, and I played basketball as well. Um, just about anything I could, um, and I, I love. I mean, even now, I, I will. I watch just about any sport on TV as well. So I was a, I was a sport mad kid. Well, you're probably watching the World Cup then, as we speak here in uh, the year 2023, because it's happening in your home country. Yes, yeah, I was up early watching Australia this morning. So um, yeah, definitely. Uh, keen observer yeah so what was it about golf that uh, uh, what was the attraction for you in terms of uh, that sport versus some of the others you played as a child Uh, I think uh, well one I wasn't allowed to play uh, real organized cricket because that at that stage was classed as a boys sport so I think that really was my other love besides golf Um, but I wasn't you know I could only play indoor cricket I couldn't play the, the the real version of the game um, but, um, apart from that, I think, um, I, you know, I played plenty of other team sports in, in school and in primary school. And, um, I think what I found was 
um, and what I loved about golf was that um, what I put into the sport I got out of, um, I didn't have to rely on someone else um, working just as hard as me to, to lift the team. Um, even though I love the camaraderie of the team atmosphere, um, I just love that if I wanted to go practice, I could go practice. I didn't, you know, it wasn't an organized thing. It was just whenever I wanted to do it. And, you know, I, the, the amount of hours I put in, you know, I was the beneficiary of. So I think, I think I really liked, I liked that part of it. And, and was the solitude of the game an attraction and, and a match for your personality type or not necessarily? Uh, I was a pretty shy kid, but when it came to sports, I think I got along with anybody. Um, and there was plenty of junior, not many junior girls at our club, but plenty of junior boys that were, were really into it. So, you know, for me, there was lots of camaraderie um, after school um, when I was practicing anyway. Um, you know, it, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a team thing, but it felt like it was. You know, we were all um, dreaming about being professional golfers one day. So <laughs> we were all sort of practicing and playing against one another. So you kind of knew what you wanted to do at a fairly early age, I understand. Hear that? That's the sound of a walk-off albatross, a two on a par five to win a two-day golf tournament. That shot happened to me. One in 600 million odds. Since then, people call me Albie. Now, I've told this story so often, my friends can't take it. I'm pretty sure my wife, next time I tell her, she's going to leave me. So I decided to start a podcast to tell the entire world about it because it deserves it. It's the craziest shot you've never heard of. And guess what? There's tons more stories like this all around golf. And that's what our podcast is all about. Join me and my fellow degenerates, Pan and Shepard as we dive into them. Insane bets, crazy what-if scenarios, and all the you-had-to-be-there type moments in golf. Find us wherever you get your podcast. Did I tell you about Malbatross? Yeah, pretty early age. Like, like uh, you know, um, we um, we used to have this tournament, uh, this pro-am that came through um, air, at the Air Golf Club and um, it was a tour called the Tropo Tour, um, and it was just in Queensland. And, um, you know, the likes of uh, Ian Baker Finch and um, Peter Senior, uh, Wayne Grady, uh, Stuart Appleby, they all, all played um, on the Tropo Tour at some point in their careers, and they all played at Air Golf Club. Um, yeah. And so very Some good players went on, through. <laughs> yes. Very early on, I um, just remember – you know, as little kids, just watching when the pros came into town, watching them hit balls um, and just marveling at how how great they hit it and, you know, um, you know, hitting their, their balls into just small little patches and, and, you know, and listening to the adults, you know, being impressed with how they were hitting it. So I think that made me realise that that's, that's what you had to work towards. Yeah. Um, so I'd always had a fascination with professional golf and obviously watched it on TV my whole life, uh, up, leading up until I was 11 and, and for my 12th birthday, which is uh, at the end of the year, close to Christmas, um, my, my grandparents uh, gave me a trip uh, down to the Gold Coast uh, to watch the Queensland Open. And, um, and it was in 1986. So Greg Norman was the number one player in the world. Um, and he just won the, the Open Championship that week, uh, that year, sorry. And, um, so there was a lot of hoopla of him coming home to play in Australia. And um, so I went 
I stayed at my mum's sister's place at my aunt's place and, and went out to the tournament um, four days in a row. And I think I was hooked right, right <laughs> from, from that tournament. I, I, I came home and, and said to my parents that I, I wanted to be a professional golfer. So when that sort of thought set settled with you, uh, how did things change? Did you change your approach? How much you, you played the game, uh, sought out coaching? What, what, what changed? Uh, nothing really changed for a couple of years. I was still doing, um, well, I, I did, besides sport, I did do a couple of extracurricular activities outside of school. I was tap dancing and playing the guitar, um, which um, my only regret, my parents never um, never pushed me to do anything. Um, they, they gave me the opportunity to do anything that I wanted to do. And um, as far as the guitar went, my lesson was at 3.30 every Monday afternoon and the next time I touched the guitar was 3.30 the following Monday afternoon. So uh, there wasn't a lot of, wasn't a lot of practice. Yeah, it wasn't a lot of practice going on, but now I wish I knew how to play it. So, uh, yeah. But so I was still doing those sorts of things up until I was 13. Um, and as far as coaching goes, um, um, I, I um, we never had a club professional at, um, the air golf club when I turned pro oh, uh, when I started golf, sorry. And, um, and, uh, so the, a uh, good friend of my parents was Calvin Heller and, uh, he, um, he actually, his family were, uh, instigators in getting my parents into, uh, golf. So my grandparents business, um, was right next to a news agency owned by Calvin's parents. And uh, Calvin uh, worked for them um, before he worked. He ended up becoming the head greenkeeper at the Air Golf Club. But um, he worked for them, and and between him and and his parents, they encouraged my parents and my grandparents to start playing golf. So um, fast forward to when I started uh, really playing golf at the age of eight, um, my parents asked Calvin to, um, you know, whenever they saw me at the golf course. Uh, whenever he saw me at the golf course to just to keep an eye on me and make sure, you know, I wasn't getting into any bad habits and, and, and that's sort of how our, our relationship started. Um, and he was one of the better players in the club, uh, but very, all self-taught. Uh, he read every golf magazine that um, was in his parents' news agency. So um, all of his, all of his learnings came from the golf magazines. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, Calvin, Calvin was my coach, um, was my only coach through the better part of my professional career. Um, and then, um, uh, well, when I was 16, Calvin um, had a, an unfortunate incident happen and, and became a quadriplegic. Um, and so uh, even though he was my only coach through the better part of my career, it started to become harder and harder because I was only seeing him a couple of times a year. And uh, it's not... It, it was the start of the internet and we were able to, to, um, to send videos back and forth. Um, but not as easy as it is today, but, you know, we were managing, but, um, you know, uh, the pressures of trying to, to be the best you can be. Um, I was very fortunate that, uh, Ian Triggs, um, helped me out for, for 10 years, Calvin and I, like he, he understood my relationship with Calvin and, and, um, just offered to, to be a part of our team. So um, I've always been very appreciative to, to Ian for that. And and later on, uh, Mike McGettrick here in, in the U.S. Um, mm -hmm. uh, also came on board as, at the same capacity. So Calvin really was, 
was my coach from from the age of eight um, until he, he his passing uh, about a year ago. After all that uh, early early days in school, how about high school? Did you stay in air for for your high school, or did you go somewhere else? Yeah, no, I stayed in air and. Um, uh, good news, bad news. My high school was right next to the golf golf course, um, so the the school um, football fields um, backed into uh, the ninth, the eighth and ninth hole at the, at the Air Golf Club. So it was a good thing because after school, so it was it was when I started high school. So when I was thirteen, um, uh, which is you know in in Australia, grade eight is the start of high school and. Uh, that was when I told my parents I just wanted to concentrate on golf, so no more tap dancing or guitar lessons for me. Um, <laughs> I kept a little bit of indoor cricket uh, in my life because that was an evening evening sport. But um, yeah, so I, I'd go to high school and then I'd walk walk to the golf course um, after school every day and and practice and play. And mom, my mum would pick me up just before dark mm. um, and take me home, or I'd walk home because I was only about five ten minutes away. Um, so that was, that was the start of high school, but bad news was there was no skipping school because they could see me if I was skipping school to be at the golf course. So (laughs) couldn't get away from with that, huh? No. (laughs) So I'm always curious to hear from our guests about what sort of learners they were at a young age. You know, we've, we've talked to a wide uh, range of aged, uh, greats from, you know, people in their eighties down to folks your age and, and and even thinking about how I learned back in the 60s, it was, you know, looking at the golf magazines that were available, observing a little bit from television, uh, but we certainly didn't have video and I didn't have exposure to a lot of professionals that could show me the ropes. How did you learn at a young age? I think a combination of all of that. Um, yeah. You know, I, I read all the golf magazines as well. Uh, and I, I definitely watched as much golf as I could we didn't um, get tons of golf um, in Australia at that time Um, we got uh, the men's majors which were on you know super early in the morning or as you know with the open championship was you know starting at midnight um, and finishing you know four o'clock in the morning Um, so um, and you know and then uh, the Australian events um, there was probably a two or three month period where there was lots of golf on. So um, I think I was I was a very good imitator of what I saw on on TV. Um, going back to my love of cricket, um, I I taught myself how to to bowl uh, or pitch uh, just by watching um, cricket on TV. So uh, I think I, I do have a very good um, learning capacity when I'm able to to see um, and copy. Um, but otherwise, my, you know, really, m- most of my coaching um, and knowledge of the game came from Calvin. Brings me to a, uh, another question. So you looked at uh, all these TV. Who was who was the one person that you tried to emulate with their swing? Was there anybody that stuck out uh, in your mind? I don't know if I tried to emulate anyone necessarily. Um, or pick pieces off of somebody. Yeah, p- pieces maybe. Um, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, I, I looked up to Greg Norman, but I wouldn't say that my swing resembles Greg's at all. Um, okay. But I think maybe you know his aggressive style of golf. I I tended to to 
copy, especially earlier in my um, playing days. Uh, you know, probably as you get older, you get a little more conservative. But yeah. <laughs> um, but early early on, I was a, a pretty aggressive player, and I think I probably modelled myself after watching him play all those years. Yeah. As as you think about how your game developed at a young age, uh, would you say that it was sort of steady progression, or did you? have these step functions where you, you had these aha moments on aspects of your game that caused you to develop to a, an aspect of your game quick. And then you went to the next part. I think it was just a steady progression. I sort of went through the age divisions of junior tournaments. Um, and just every time I raised the level, my game raised with it. Um, I don't know if I really know why that happened or how that happened. Besides, you know, I was constantly practicing and working at it um and you know as i was getting older i was just getting better and i was also understanding how to put a score together a little bit more as well so um yeah each each step i took in my golfing journey i just i just raised to that level um so i was very fortunate that way that i was just naturally able to do that you know bruce she brings up a great point which we've heard many times about uh ball striking is one thing but it's getting it in the hole and learning how to play the golf courses and yeah. yeah, when to be aggressive yeah. and when not to be. Yeah, I think um, that that is a big key. And it took me a while. Like I was very good playing in North Queensland and then even in, within Queensland on, on Bermuda golf courses and Bermuda greens. Um, it took me a little bit longer. Um, you know, I had some shockers going away to Australian amateurs at playing at Royal Melbourne and in the <laughs> heart, <laughs> heart of winter, you know, coming from North Queensland and not even having the right clothes. Uh, you know, so freezing and then and then not playing well and, and, you know, not really understanding how to chip to to firm and faster greens and, and, and putt on um, greens that had way more um, break and speed break, and yeah. speed to them. So, um, yeah, that, that took that took a few knocks. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't I didn't play well at those higher levels immediately. But, you know, I learned I, I was a quick learner and I and I. I learn from every one of those opportunities. I think it's fair to say that your path from uh, you know, sort of junior golf to the professional ranks looks a little different than it does nowadays, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, I think so. I mean, um, it, that it is different, but it, it's also a little similar in that, um, you know, I never went to college in the U S um, right. and, uh, at the time of turning pro, it was just before my 20th birthday and um, everyone was screaming at me that I was too young. Uh, and, um, you know, my rookie year in Europe, I was I was 20 years old and I was the youngest on tour. And then um, the following year, I was um, my rookie year in the LPGA and I was 21 and I was the youngest on tour. Yeah. Um, which now when you look at it, 21, girls have been on tour for you know, three yeah, or four three years, or four years. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're and if you're a korean girl you've been on tour maybe five or six years there so, you go there you go um you know it, it, it it's definitely changed a lot but um yeah like i didn't take possibly what's seen especially in the u.s what a traditional um path and go to, go to college go to college yeah yeah because you know you came along at a time when that path was at least open to you if you'd come along 15, 20 years before, before Title IX in the U.S., it was a whole different world here for women, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, it, and it was open to me. I did. I looked into it briefly, but um, 
the difference between when I was looking into it and now, um, the big thing for me was that if I went to college in the States, I couldn't represent Australia anymore. And now the girls can do both. Yeah. Um, so I didn't uh, realize that. Mm. Yeah. I, plus, I also, you know, I, my last two years of high school, 11 and 12, I missed quite a bit of school playing golf. Um, and so I was forever catching up on work or doing work ahead of time and getting assignments in early. And, and I just found that stress, you know, because I, I was a good student and I wasn't allowing myself to fail. I, I found that stress of juggling golf and study um, quite a bit, uh, quite a lot of work. And um, the thought of doing that at college um, also was a bit of a negative to me as well. But, but the biggest thing was that I wasn't going to be able to play. Um, play for Australia. Yeah, yeah. So take us through uh, sort of your amateur career. You had uh, quite a few successes over a period of years and uh, tell us a little bit about how your game was developing during those years. I think we uh, we see an opportunity where you were able to play for the Australian amateur team and had quite a bit of junior success and other things. Yeah, like I said, I, I sort of progressed through, um, you know, each step. Um, as it came, but I, I, I took a, a really big jump. Um, I don't think I'd won any state or national junior tournaments before I won the Queensland stroke play. Um, and that, I think that sort of came about because I got left off. I was the lowest handicapped junior in the state and got left off the under 21 junior team and the under 18 sub junior team um, for the Australian junior the January prior. Um, and you know, um, you decided pro- probably, to show probably felt like I was being discriminated. <laughs> felt like I was being discriminated against because I was I was from North Queensland, and you know I didn't really fit the the golf scene. You know, I was this country yeah. kid that was rough around the edges, and um, so you know I think that just uh, you know lit a fire in me that I was just going to prove them wrong. And the very next opportunity I got, I um. I won. I won against you know the older the whole team. <laughs> well, yeah, the I, I, against some of the best um, amateurs in the country. Um, you know, some of the older players at that time was Cavill and Edwina Kennedy, and um, you know they were Louise Bryars. They were all playing in that event, and um, you know this sixteen-year-old kid came along and and won the yeah. event, which I wasn't I wasn't supposed to do, and. Liz Cavill went to bat for me and, and, you know, that was when it was still the ALGU or the QLGU um, for me and in Queensland and was like, why have I not seen this girl play before now? Um, yeah. So uh, I, that was that was the end of the discrimination. They couldn't ignore me anymore. So, um, you know, so I actually represented the Queensland amateur team before I ever represented the Queensland junior team, which is mm. not normally okay. how it happens. It's, it's amazing what a little motivation will do. <laughs> yeah. Can you think of other examples in your career where you were able to draw on some motivation from another sort, perhaps, and have some success? Well, I think, um, you know, early in my professional career, I wasn't the, um, I wasn't the right fit for um, carrying the LPGA into the next generation. Um, I was deemed that by some media people and, and some some outspoken players on tour um, and, you know, uh, rather than try to fit the mold, I would just dug my heels in and continue to be myself and just be you and, and, and play as good a golf as I could. 
you know, you bring something up, which we're going to talk, I think we will talk about uh, a little bit later, but uh, you know, you had somebody come before you from the, from the lady ranks and that was Jan Stevenson. And, and so you start talking about uh, fitting the mold and so forth, right? Uh, she yeah. was asked to do something that in retrospect, she shares today that she probably wish she hadn't done, which was to be the sex symbol, if you will, of the LPGA tour and really help them market the tour the way it was marketed back in the certain certain segment of time to attract viewers, mm. to attract uh, sponsors and so forth. But what Bruce and I both learned in, 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 in going through her life was uh, she was a bit of a maverick too, particularly at a young age. You know, she... She, I would never call her, uh, 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 oh, I don't know, going a along conformist. With, uh, yeah, a conformist. That's a, thank you for helping me with my grammar. <laughs> exactly. Uh, th- does that sound familiar to you? Does that feel familiar to you as well? Yeah, I think so. I think um, you know. I mean, I did take a, a, some of that personally, but um, instead of taking it um, in a way that made me feel lesser i think i i i used it as motivation um to prove doubt is wrong um mm-hmm. and you know i think i've i've always i've always done that you know i think because even within me i've i've had that um that doubting voice in my head at times and and i've you know had to to prove that that voice in my head wrong a number of times so yeah. um you know i've always sort of uh been like the the battler, you know, trying to prove prove everyone wrong. Yeah, I'm I'm a big believer that no matter how uh, cocksure and confident people uh, come across, we've all got that little voice in our head. Yeah, I think <laughs> yeah. so too. Yeah. So at some point, as your career develops, you're having some su- success as a junior, um, um, and you're going from age oh, let's say fifteen, sixteen, through your decision to turn professional. Tell us a little bit about how that came about, who was involved in the decision, how easy was it for you, and uh, and what you had to do to become a professional golfer back in that day? Well, I think uh, the decision, I mean, my, I, I certainly talked to it with my parents um, and to, to, with Calvin, and um, this, the decision probably came about a year or two quicker than, than I had thought it was going to um, in the plan that I had for myself. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, in um, the end of uh, 1994 or or the year of 1994, I, I won the Australian Stroke play at the start of the year. Um, and I over after finishing high school in 1992, I, I played amateur golf um, full time pretty much for, for two years. I worked part time, um, but but, you know, most of my um free time was was devoted to, to practicing and and working as hard as they good and just the freedom of not having to worry about um you know schoolwork and going to school and, and handing in assignments and stuff like that it, there was just that freedom to to grow as a golfer and those two years were were really successful and um and and back then there was no one sending us to the british am or to the u.s amateur or, or even to play any of the big amateur tournaments in the u.s um you know, the only overseas trips we'd get is if we represented Australia. And at the end of 94 um, was the World Amateur um, in Paris. And um, the following year, 
there wasn't any overseas trips. The only Australian team uh, I could make was the Commonwealth team, and that was going to be in Australia. So I wasn't even going to get to go overseas. Um, and so I sort of set myself a little goal at the World Amateur, and I talked to my parents about it, um, that if I finished in the top five at the World Amateur, that I would turn pro. And um, I achieved that. And um, so then I came back from Paris and um, and then turned turn pro. Then back then it was a certain handicap which I had easily, and you just paid to to join the join um, the club. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Australian Women's PGA. So you didn't have to go through what I went through, huh? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I didn't have to be a trainee pro. Is that what? Is that what? No, you had to do? no, no, no. When I turned pro, they said we'd love to have you turn pro but you can't take any money for 12 months oh no i've never heard that no you've never heard that no yeah so uh i played on the australian circuit in uh 61 and i think i won twice on the circuit never never got a penny oh well (laughs) and that that's a little weird isn't it yeah that is (laughs) time to change and had to turn yeah. down an invitation to the Masters during that time. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Oh, wow. Yeah, I might be the only person ever turned a, yeah, an invitation to Augusta down, I think. Wow. And, if, and it was Clifford Roberts at that in terms of somebody yes, who turned Clifford down. That's probably not the guy. Yeah. Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Good of the Game. And please, wherever you listen to your podcast on Apple and Spotify, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, spread the word, and tell your friends. Until we tee it up again, for the good of the game, so long, everybody. Whack down the fairway, it went smack down the fairway. Then it started to slice just a smidge off line It headed for two, but it bounced off nine My caddy says, long as you're still in the state, you're okay Yes, it went straight down the middle, quite a way